Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Did you see that? What was it? It was a woolly rhinoceros chasing a bunch of Neanderthals. God, this whole area is going crazy. I know, right? Yesterday it was the giant ground sloths. I missed that. What time was that? I beg your pardon? What time did that happen? I don't know what you mean. Time. Like a a really specific part of the day? We need a better system. (laughs) We get up, we do stuff, we go to sleep. What's wrong with that? Okay, let's say I wanted to meet up with you. You're with me right now. No, but later. Define later. Uh, A certain amount of the day would have passed. You could just go look for me? Okay, well, imagine this. What if I had a thing, um, like, on my wrist, and you had a thing on your wrist, and then we could look at it and, and know what part of the day it was, and I could be like, hey, you know, let's meet by the berry bushes when our wrist things say... You know, whatever. Okay, now you're talking really crazy. Maybe, but maybe not. Seriously, that is crazy talk. Yeah, you said that about the wheel. This is different. This magical wrist thing. Don't even mention it to anyone else, okay? Okay, well, I gotta run. Yeah, see you tomorrow. Okay, what time? Huh? Got you. And now the guy who's always late for the Smilodon roast... Colin McEnroe. Yeah, it was a struggle, right, to, to figure out what time it was. We, we've gone on such a journey uh, as, a, as a species in terms of uh, knowing the time. Uh, I was thinking about this just go, as we were, went on the air today. I was thinking about the first 20 years of my life. I was uh, mainly a writer and mainly a newspaper columnist and stuff like that. And time was minimally important. And then I started to get into radio. And I used to be on commercial radio where everything's live and you're trying to sync up with traffic reports and that are timed out a certain way and, and news and weather and all this stuff. And there was sort of a lot of coordination being a drive-time radio host. And we really used to sort of negotiate. And we, we do this here in public radio to a certain degree too uh, in intervals of 10 seconds or – I mean you actually would talk about, it. well, let's, I'll go to you at 128.15. That would mean 15 se- seconds. And I would go home and <laughs> – you know, and home, and home, everything happens kind of within you know a forty-five minute margin, right? Dinner or whatever. It's you know, and I would be, I would still be in this mindset of like, oh, no, I mean, I'm used to talking about when things are going to happen within seconds, but that's the way that we live. We live with very, with sort of um, a sliding scale of time. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the instinct to keep time and the history of timekeeping today. Uh, it's uh, we'll, this will feature uh, our guest in studio, Tom Manning, a curator of clock. Uh, at the American Clock and Watch Museum in Bristol. Joining us from the studios of NPR in New York, Stacey Perman. Uh, she's the author of A Grand Complication, or I should say, Un Grand Complication, uh, The Race to Build the World's Most Legendary Watch. And a little bit later, we will actually talk to the chief scientist for the U.S. Naval Observatory's Time Services. That's where time comes from these days. Well, time doesn't really come from anywhere, but if it comes from anywhere, that's where it comes from. All right, and as we go along here, we will welcome your phone calls as well. But we're going to start with Tom 
Tom and Stacy uh, and uh, kind of set the stage a little bit. So, uh, Tom, I'm going to uh, ask you to get us started. Uh, those poor people sitting out there on the on the Ice Age uh, landscape at the beginning of our show. They want to be able to keep time. And so initially, to quote from Stacey Berman's book, initially what they have in the beginning is the sun, right? You can, it's the sun. They live by the sun. That yeah. was it. They got up with the sun. They went to bed with the sun. And, 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 and what, what kind of timekeeping did they try to do? I mean, what were the earliest stabs at this? Well, I think basically most of the time, either living with the sun, the only indication they probably had would have been a sundial, which mm. would probably give them some indication of what the time was like during the day, but I think they mostly did it by dead reckoning. Mm-hmm. They, they had no other way of doing it except by that means. I mean, timekeeping wasn't really didn't come into its vogue till the 16th century, when very early timekeepers began to be developed over in Europe. Although and, there was there was some sort of staggering along here. So, so <clears throat> Stacy Perman, um, you know, for a while it was sundials and water clocks, right? That's right. Um, I, I think what's interesting about timekeeping is it really is a benchmark of civilization because it was sort of the earliest technology. So I think you could really measure where humanity is by how we measure time. So you start with you know the sun and then scoring rocks and sundials, water clocks, moving on to mechanical clock, mechanical clocks. And today, you know, we have atomic time. So we're at the top of the heap, so to speak. And, you know, it seems as though the human race kind of staggered along a little bit with uh, sundials and water clocks or pretty inaccurate form of technology. Although, um, Stacey Perman, when we talk about the human race, we sometimes make the mistake of focusing our attentions uh, on Europe uh, when, in fact, all the innovation uh, for a while was being done in China and the Islamic world, right? That's right. Um, that's an interesting point that, that that you raise. Actually, you know, sort of during the Dark Ages when, you know, everything came to a halt in Europe, uh, the Islamic world and China were, you know, advancing technology in terms of horology and, and timekeeping and came up with uh, a number of innovations that really pushed this um, technology forward before uh, Europe, uh, well, they, you know, and heavily influenced Europe. Um, you had Islamic Spain that introduced the astrolabe um, to Spain and then the rest of Europe, and then we move on from there. Um, and so the the Islamic world has the incentive of daily prayer, right? That's why, I mean, there always has to be some kind of reason why you want to keep time. So they've got daily prayer. They want to know what time it is. Um, uh, and so that's one of the reasons they get good at clocks. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. And actually, in Europe as well, that was kind of the introduction of uh, community clocks were clock towers in churches also to the call to prayer. And the other thing that I, I read, I think, in your book was that uh, in China, or sometime around maybe 1100 A.D., they really did build this awesome clock to end all clocks uh, that was then immediately snatched away by invaders. But this is kind of an astronomical clock that was driven by a water wheel. Is that right? Yes, it was pretty incredible. I mean, I can't remember how it, it stood quite tall. It had, you know, the most advanced technology of the day, which I think that's what you see with clocks uh, throughout time. Um, and it was sort of a the the court uh, or the um, the emperor of China had commissioned this from um, their top horolo- horological scientist of the day. Uh, it was later stolen, as you said, by invading Tartars, and um, nobody could uh, recreate this for 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 decades or even I think longer than that. And then eventually, uh, a manuscript of of how it was made sort of showed up, and so. 
later, in more recent years, there have been some replicas made of it. But it was really a standalone. It was really a high point in Chinese horology, but it also sort of at the same time marked the end of that era of Chinese horology. Yeah. They must have been so mad, you know, to make this clock and the Tartar show up and take it. So Tom Manning, um, what's the breakthrough? What's the breakthrough in the 16th century that allows us to have mechanical clocks? It was the development of the pendulum, which mm-hmm. occurred in the 16th century in, in Holland and as a means of controlling a, a timepiece to give a more accurate reading from, you know, from the results of the, of the clock running using weights or much later using springs to do the same thing. So, power. so but, if you if you if you're going to explain Tom what a mechanical clock is, what it does, I mean, yeah. and explain it to me, the stupidest person on the face of the earth, like I don't know how anything works in yes. my life at all. Uh, my poodle knows more. Uh, <laughs> if you would explain what a clock does or how a mechanical mechanical clock works, how would you de- describe it's, it? It's basically a a movement of wheels that mesh with each other, being controlled by a pendulum, which basically allows a, a slow. Um, Movement of, of with a pendulum to basically in a, in a in a consistent manner to to basically tell the time by means of hands and using a dial with numbers on it to give you some indication of what the time is. And so, um, Stacy, once you can do that, then you can start trying to make other devices. That is it. You that you start making other devices that essentially copy uh, what the pendulum does, yeah. or copy the measurement of time that the pen- pendulum does. Well, I actually, I would think, and, and Tom, you know, you might jump in here too. I think it was more a matter of refinement. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the whole race for time is accuracy. And so the big, the early clocks were big and clunky and pretty inaccurate for hundreds of years. I mean, I think one of the things today most of us don't even think about because time is so ubiquitous and accurate time is, is everywhere on your car dashboard, on your microwave oven, your smartphone, is actually it took probably four or 500 years before there was an accurate measurement of time. Yeah, and also the earliest clocks only had one hand mm-hmm. because people, they were like, it was, that was close enough. People were, people were not necessarily concerned about, you know, it was five minutes after whatever. It was close enough, and these early clocks only had one hand, and eventually they evolved into two. And my sense also is that for a long time, you know, whatever place you lived, they had a time there that might be a little bit different from another place, right? Exactly, exactly. In fact, what was interesting is that the Japanese had their own unique time system, which was controlled by the time of the year. Mm-hmm. And and their clocks were very unusual in that in, in, in winter, the timing was different than it was in the summer. Um, and But even like village to village, and Stacey, I know I, one of the few things that I do know about this subject is that there there always are some reasons for... Uh, that, that spur development of better timepieces and more coordinated timekeeping. One of them is the railroads, right? I mean, in other words, we can't have it be one time in Greenwich, Connecticut, and a different time in Boston if the trains are going to run correctly. Exactly. In fact, um, that is why that is why we have sort of standardized time here. There was a terrible train crash in 1891 in. Um, Kipton, Ohio. And the reason was because the the different um, railways had, you know, slightly different watches with slightly different times. Um, After that, there was a call to come up with a standardized time and a Cleveland jeweler, Webb Seaball, came up with this standardized uh, or watch standard for time, which is why you have the saying, get on the ball, which means, you know, accurate, you know, punctuality basically comes from this um, incident. Um, Tom, many, they had to, they, yeah. well, they had yeah. to have accurate, and they had to have accurate watches, basically, so that everybody was in sync, right? Because it was extremely important. Because if this guy was off by a couple of minutes, it could be life and death. As far as uh, there were numerous 
train crashes in the 19th century, which as a result of the fact that timing was wrong. Um, and, and I mean, on a less catastrophic level, too, you just want to be waiting for the train at the right time, too. Exactly. It's sort of that. That's well. true. That's true. Um, the, um, Tom, why Which is we it? haven't learned with Amtrak today yet. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> well, actually, when you ride the trains in Japan, you really do have to be there at the right time. Uh, the, um, the, Tom, why is it that Con- Connecticut really was kind of an epicenter here in America, right? Connecticut was the clock capital of the world, and it basically developed from uh, from a body team. Well, they were making clocks back in the in the 18th century, but those were generally handcrafted uh, clocks that were only only the wealthy could afford because they were just too expensive. They were all had to be made by hand. All the parts had to be cast and filed and finished to, to make a complete movement. And and they were also making wooden movement clocks where the gears are made out of wood, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, those were usually run 30 hours. And the person who certainly couldn't afford a brass one could probably afford to buy a, a wooden clock. Is it was there a reason that this that it, that it was Connecticut? Does it have, is it just Yankee ingenuity and tinkering? Is there some reason why all these clockmakers coagulated here? Uh, I, I guess it was just the fact that it was just Yankee ingenuity that this basically developed in in this particular state. Which was amazing because this was the clock capital. I mean, all of the major clock companies were here in Connecticut. Like na- na- name a few. Seth Thomas is the one that well, I. We have yeah. Seth Thomas. You had New Haven Clock Company. There was the Waterbury Clock Company. There was the Sessions Clock Company. There was the Ingram Clock Company. There was the Gilbert Clock Company in Winstead, and so we had more than half a dozen, and they produced almost all of the clocks. At least the mass-produced clocks were, were basically done here in Connecticut. And what was the, what was the heyday of that? What was the time? This period? was in the 19th century. Yeah. So from about 1850 all the way up to the early part of the 20th century uh, was pretty much the clock-making business in the state. Um, By the way, as we go along here, if people have questions or comments, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Although, um, Stacey Perman, my sense is that starting maybe even in the early 19th century, you know, I mean, we think of watchmakers, and we're going to talk about the kinds of watchmakers that you write about in your book uh, as doing this incredibly complicated art. But the other part of this was um, that... Um, that mass production was beginning, or at least the idea that a watchmaker got his parts from a lot of different sources, right? I mean, you weren't making every little part of a watch yourself. Right. Well, the the Swiss tradition, there were um, watchmakers in Switzerland, and there were families that were dedicated to, to making various parts. But um, in terms of mass production, to Tom's point, it was in the um, early 19... Uh, the mid... Um, 19th century, the American watchmakers began doing something now called the American tradition, where they would actually use machines. It was you know, heavily uh, influenced by the Industrial Revolution to make parts, which was something that was unheard of in Europe. And they kind of looked askance at the American tradition or you know, looked down on it um, because this was a, a tradition of craftsmanship and hand, handmade parts. But um, while the American watches maybe weren't as singularly beautiful or aesthetically pleasing, um, there was something to that um, mass production of of parts, and um, it sort of came to the fore at one of the world expo- expositions where it was introduced on a you know world scale and really sort of was uh, turned the watch world on its head. All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. We're talking about horology, about these the science and art, uh, and sometimes battle uh, of keeping time. We'll be back after this. Yeah. 
We're talking about the measurement of time, horology. Uh, we're talking about it with um, two guests, Tom Manning, curator of clocks at the American Clock and Watch Museum in Bristol, and Stacy Perman, the author of A Grand Complication, The Race to Build the World's Most Legendary Watch. Stacy Perman, um, one of the things that you say in the book is uh, you, you make the argument, or maybe you quote other people making the argument, that the develop- development of the mechanical watch, the ability to really keep time, was as big a leap as movable type. Make that case. Yes. Yes, that is exactly true. Um, you know, again, back to an earlier point that, you know, the Dark Ages where everything stopped in Europe and the Islamic world and, and China were moving forward and advancing technology and innovations in horology. But then you have um, Europe sort of making a comeback and you have Spain and England and France and, you know, the European countries sort of battling it out for supremacy. And it was the ability to keep time, make time and use instruments that really did two things. I think it's sort of the start of the modern era or the modern world, but it also brought Europe out of its sort of backwater status because they could make instruments to not just tell time, but um, to navigate the seas. And that, of course, allowed them to have supremacy over each other, dominate each other as, as, as world powers. Um, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, you know, in the 18th century, I mean, we had no way of determining longitude, which is a way to determine how far you are from one spot to another going west to east. And as a result, we needed an accurate timekeeper to be able to determine where you were so that you could time and figure out. They, they came up with very complicated systems of using instruments to try to figure out the movement of the stars to try to determine where you were at, when you were in the ocean. Because once you left land, you had no way of knowing where you were. You know, it's kind of interesting, too, because we, when we talk to Demetrius later, I mean, an awful lot of precise time now comes from the military. The Air Force is in charge of GPS. And, you know, but I, I assume, Tom, that there's just this huge military advantage. Uh, if, Absolutely. You, if you can calculate yeah. longitude, you've got a big advantage. Right? Absolutely. That's right. That's right. And that's what John Harrison, who was a who was a clock person who basically came up with the method of determining accurate time using a watch mechanism eventually. Um, all right, let's grab a call or two. We've got Robert in Greenwich. Hi, Robert. You're on the air. Hi. I uh, recently read that uh, Switzerland now has a uh, factory with robots in it to assemble their mechanical watches, and uh, which are beautiful and pieces of art. And um, But my question had to do with how our Yankee ingenuity made its way over to uh, to Switzerland, or things happen somewhat simultaneously. Well, actually, you got the two right guests for this, and and Stacy in just a second. I mean, Stacy can tell us so much about these uh, Swiss watchmakers. Although uh, the the watch that she writes about in this book uh, is not going to be made by, ro- by robots. I can tell you that much. But but Tom, before we ask Stacy about that, um, what happened to the Connecticut industry? Why why isn't Connecticut, the watchmaking center of the world. Now. Well, it wasn't really too much here. It was it was basically in Massachusetts. Waltham was a huge company. Uh, there was some out in the West. Ball Watch is another one. Or clock Hel- making. What, what happened to yeah. our clock making? Well, our clock making business basically uh, after World War II, because they they all had to convert to do wartime uh, production. I know Ingram was making fuses for bombs and so on mm-hmm. in World War II. And after the wars were over, the business slowly began to. Uh, disappear. A lot of them went out of business because, I mean, battery-operated clocks began to come, appear, and and uh, so the mechanical clock sort of went by the wayside, and, and so in its heyday, and that was basically the death knell. 
And, and Stacey, is there an international parallel to that story, uh, the story of other things kind of driving out or at least eating up some of the real estate of the mechanical clock and the mechanical watch? Well, I mean, the mechanical watch, you know, as as Tom was saying, you know, after World War II, um, besides the whole industry being turned over to the war, you had in the um, 60s, you had the introduction of the quartz watch, which made watches infinitely cheaper and actually a lot more accurate. And they started to flood the market. Um, interestingly enough, the Swiss, Swiss watchmakers and the uh, Swiss engineers had been working on quartz technology. But again, the um, Swiss kind of looked down on it. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if IBM was introduced to, you know, silicon chips in the 1960s and said, nah, we're just going to make typewriters. They're much better. Um, it's kind of what happened. So they lost out and the Japanese sort of took the lead. And mechanical watches fell out of favor. They were expensive. They were your grandfather's watch. And, you know, you could buy a Timex for next to nothing in a drugstore or anywhere else. And the the time was much more um, accurate. It was battery run, quartz run. Um, and that's kind of what happened um, in, in, in this industry. And sort of, you know, at one point in the 70s, it looked like the Swiss watch industry was going to go under. I mean, they thought it was going to go under. Um, and it was sort of heroically brought back to life by Nicholas Hayek, um, whose name you might not know, but you probably know the company that he started, which was Swatch, which he sort of merged these two ideas of Swiss tradition and modern uh, quartz watches. Is it almost uh, too easy to keep time now or to know the time? I mean, it seems, Stacey, like it's sort of less of this supreme accomplishment. Well, I mean, it's like air, right? You don't think about it. You just look on your wrist or you look on your smartphone or your microwave oven and uh, time is there. Um, people don't think about it, uh, you know, but, you know, maybe we don't need to anymore. Except for, except for the people who really, really care about this stuff. I want to just spend a couple of minutes with both of you talking about the people who are passionate about this. So Tom Manning, um, who comes to the Amer- – I've lived in Connecticut my entire life, and I'm shamefully confessing <laughs> I've never been to the American Clock and Watch Museum. But I'm guessing there are people who do travel to great distances and want to be there. Why do they want to be there? Yeah, because, Well, I think many, many people come are actually collectors of, mm. of clocks because the, the clock business – the development of clocks in the 19th century in Connecticut was a very interesting process. I mean these guys were doing – all kinds of strange things with the clocks they were making and movement design and everything else, which is what makes people want to collect this kind of an object. And it's also a piece of art. It's beautiful. A lot of these clocks had reverse painted glasses on the bottom as a decorative element of the clock, beautifully made dials and so on. And so people are attracted to that. Some collect them for that reason or they collect a particular type. There were calendar clocks that were being made back then and people really enjoy that kind of stuff. So some people tend to, they, they collect one particular type. For me, I liked clocks that were made with wooden movements because they were very unusual. There were lots of variations made, but these guys were doing because these guys were making they were making thousands of them a year, which was amazing. And these were being peddled out into the countryside. They were they were going down into the south and out into the Western Reserve, which was part of Connecticut at one point, into Ohio. Ohio became a big clock making region out there. They produced thousands of clocks in Ohio because people migrated out from Connecticut and brought the technology with them. They were making them in New York as well. So. It's just the idea that it's just the beauty of the piece and, and what you might be interested in, what, what the mechanism was like or something like that. Well, you know, uh, Stacey, as Tom talks about the mechanism and about people doing crazy things with these uh, with the mechanisms of these clocks, uh, that's kind of a little bit, uh, at least what your book, A Grand Complication, Un Grand Complication, is about, right? First of all, you have to say what a complication is, Stacey. 
Sure. Complication is a feature in a watch outside of timekeeping. So it would be outside of um, hours or the measurement of hours, minutes, or seconds. So you have something like a perpetual calendar that um, calculates for leap years. You have minute repeaters, um, which chime on the quarter hour, the hour, um, the half hour. You have uh, dive watches that um, have helium valves um, so that the watch can work at whatever level of the sea you're at. Um, those are basically some of the complications. And and so this, in, in, in particular, you are chronicling the story of this one particular watch, which sort of has surfaced and disappeared and surfaced and recently sold at auction for $11 million. Do I have that right? Well, it did in 1999. That was the first time it came on the market, and it yeah. broke all records. Um, and when it sold for $11 million at that time in 1999, and nobody expected it would surface again, but it did just last year. And it broke its own record um, at $24 million at Sotheby's. And what's so great about it? <laughs> well, there's a lot of things great about it. I mean, I think in, in some ways it encapsulates the history of horology, but it also has sort of a romance to it and this interesting provenance. So it's called the super complication because it has 24 complications. Um, it was the most complicated mechanical watch of its era. It's a pocket watch. It's double dial. It was made by the Swiss watchmaker Patek Philippe for a man named Henry Graves Jr., who was a uh, the son of a, I guess you'd call him a robber baron today in New York City. Uh, he was a connoisseur. Uh, he collected um, paintings and Chinese porcelains, and then he um, got very interested in timepieces. And then there was a man in Ohio named James Ward Packard, who uh, whose name is probably more familiar because of the Packard automobile. And he was a brilliant engineer, and he was also a collector of watches. And he was a collector of complicated watches. And they had this sort of gentleman's duel during the early part of the 20th century. They both wanted to possess the most complicated timepiece. And in the end, Graves uh, took the victory with the super complication. I mean, it's a beautiful piece. Um, it chimes the same chime as Big Ben in London. It has um, all sorts of, you know, whiz-bang features. I mean, it was kind of the iPhone or the iPad of its day, or I guess the Apple Watch of its day. Um, it had, I guess, but I like to call the piece de resistance, it had a sky chart. It was the only, the second sky chart that Patek Philippe had made. The first was from Mr. Packard. So basically, it calculated the nighttime sky above Mr. Graves' Fifth Avenue apartment, and it moved with the heavens just as the sky did over Manhattan. All right. I definitely want one of those. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then I, but then I'd probably lose it. All right. So we're going to take a break here. We're with Tom Manning. He's curator of clocks at the American Clock and Watch Museum in Bristol, Connecticut. When we come back, I'm going to ask Tom if there's sort of a clock counterpart to that. You know, one clock to rule them all, one clock to bind them. Also with us, Stacey Perman. Her bo book, A Grand Complication, is about the race to build the world's most legendary watch. And within it, this incredible story of this, this, the art of these watchmakers. I had a watch custom made. All it says is, you're late. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McNichol and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Julia Pistel and Kelsey Bissell. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Flava Flav. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making century eggs in a pressure cooker, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the nose is free at last from Ben Affleck's ancestors. And now... Back to Colin. 
All right. Uh, we're talking about horology, about the, the art and science of keeping time. Uh, and special thanks to Jonathan McNichol, who's making a special trip here to produce this show and has made it a labor of love. Uh, we are going to add one more voice to our chorus here. Our chorus already includes Tom Manning, curator of clocks at the American Clock and Watch Museum in Bristol. Uh, Stacy Perman, who's the author of A Grand Complication, The Race to Build, The World's Most Legendary Watch. And now, the keeper of all time, the man who knows where time really comes from, Dimitrios, uh, Dimitrios uh, Mutsakis, I hope, I hope I'm saying that correctly, uh, chief scientist for the U.S. Naval Observatory's Time Services. Welcome to our conversation. Good afternoon. And I understand, are you in Hawaii right now at some kind of conference about time? I am. It's about time and how it relates to navigation. And, and first of all, tell us, I mean, okay, so my cell phone right now, if I hold it up, it's going to tell me what time it is. I should have a beautiful watch like the kind that Stacey Perman writes about or, or an elaborate mechanical clock, the kinds that, that Tom Manning collects uh, in, in Bristol, Connecticut. But instead, like a lot of people, I'm probably just going to look at my cell phone. It's going to tell me what time it is. And I don't even have to worry about that. I just know that's really what time it is. Well, where does that time come from? If it's, uh, it's probably getting its time directly from a cell tower, it depends on how you have it set. But either way, whether it gets it from the cell tower first or directly from the satellites, most of the time that people get or much of the time that people come is broadcast by GPS. Each GPS satellite is actually broadcasting the time. That's what they're sending down. And your smartphone picks up the uh, signals from the times of all those satellites, and they come to you uh, incorrectly because it's taken time for the signal, the time to get to you. So they all come a little late. And your smartphone is smart enough to figure all that out, to figure out where you are compared to all these different satellites that are each giving you the wrong signal because it took time to get here. And then it also figures out what time you're at. And we can do it in the best receivers to an accuracy of a billionth of a second. Now, how does, how does the satellite know what time it is? Ah, the, the satellites go over monitor sites where we broadcast up corrections to what they're telling people the time is. So the atomic clocks on there are broadcasting what they think the time is, and then roughly once a day, the Air Force tells them, no, your time's off by X amount, and the satellites adjust it. So they all stay... Uh, each one collectively within a few nanoseconds of the time kept at the U.S. Naval Observatory, which is where I work. Aha. Uh-huh. So we've gone sort of hand over fist back up and down the ladder of time. We're back now at the U.S. Naval Observatory. Uh, and there you're using an atomic clock, right? That's what really keeps time? Over 100 atomic clocks. Over 100. Now, and, and so I, I don't even know. I mean, once again, I made uh, Tom explain something to me as if I were a poodle, which is about where my understanding of things actually is. So as if I were a poodle, explain to me what the, the atomic clock does. An atomic clock is a clock that gets its time from the oscillations of atoms. So that is the basis of it. If you have a conventional wristwatch, it'll get its time from the oscillations of a spring, which is inside of it. That's why, when, at least in the old days, you would wind the clock up, you'd set that spring, and then it does its oscillation thing, then you count those oscillations in a rather elaborate way, and that tells you the time. Here, you prepare atoms, and you count their oscillations, 
in a, again, in an elaborate way. And you count them, and there's a time. Um, and so, um, given that, given all of that, given the fact that time is the work of a hundred different atomic clocks, what's there even to have a conference about out in Hawaii? Haven't, hasn't every single problem been solved? There's more problems than you can imagine, <laughs> than anyone can imagine. The talk I'm giving is because uh, it's based on the fact that some GPS receivers, the most precise ones, pick up inconsistent information from the satellites. The satellites broadcast a coded signal with the time. They also have a carrier, and you can get time separately from those two things. Inside the GPS receivers, there are little offsets in how they measure those things, and those can lead to discrepancies on the order of, in the worst case, 200 picoseconds a day. A picosecond is a thousandth of a billionth of a second, I guess a trillionth of a second. Oh, Lord. So I, I want to go turn, turn back to our mechanical um, experts here for a second. Um, so, Stacey Berman, as you listen to him talk, are, is he talking about the same thing that you're talking about when you write about one of these incredibly complicated high-end Swiss watches? Is it trying to do the same thing as an atomic clock, or are they really different animals? No, I mean, essentially, yes. I mean, they're both after accuracy, but a mechanical watch is never, ever going to be as accurate as a quartz watch or an atomic clock simply because it's, you know, handmade. Its parts are, you know, prone to human error, to, you know, all sorts of teeny tiny calculations that, you know, the tiniest bit could throw it off. Um, But at the end of the day, everyone's after the same goal, which is accurate time. I mean, Tom Manning, you know, we were talking during the break about sort of the the democratization of the watch and and that they're, you know, around the turn of the century, um, the ability of the average man to own a watch um, was, well, it was in doubt, right? You had to, I mean, could could an average person say in 1900 of a person more or less middle class own a watch? Possibly could own a watch. I mean, the thing was that they did. Uh, you usually went to a jeweler and you basically picked a movement from a uh, from a selection that the jeweler offered, and it had various numbers of jewels. Which basically, uh, the more jewels the watch had, the better quality it was, and the better a timekeeper it was. And you would then basically select a case to put it in. But also, the, the average person, maybe who somebody was working in a factory, probably couldn't afford a, a pocket watch of that quality. So. The, the watch companies in that area were actually building or making dollar watches where they could buy a pocket watch for a dollar, which gave reasonably accurate time, was good enough for, for what these guys wanted. But, but even mechanical watches and mechanical clocks, I mean, you have to deal with the fact that you're dealing with humidity, you're dealing with temperature changes, which affects the oscillation of a watch or a clock, and also the fact that you've got friction and everything else, and over the years, the, the watch begins to wear, and then the, then the meshing isn't quite so good, and the clock doesn't work as well and slows down or has problems. Although, uh, Stacey, some of the watches that you write about are meant to work for like 100 years, right? Indeed. I mean, I think that's that's <clears throat> what's so interesting about if you compare to what, you know, people use today, smartphones, and I guess we'll get to the Apple Watch, which have this built-in obsolescence. I mean, I've seen watches. I mean, the, grand, the, the super complication that I mentioned, for instance, was uh, it took eight years to build. It was delivered in 1933. It still works today. I saw it in November before it went up um, for auction. It was working perfectly. It chimed perfectly. I believe the last time it was serviced before then was 1967 when it changed hands from the Graves family to um, Seth... Uh, Oh, his name escapes me for a moment. Um, the man who bought it and owned the um, Time Museum in um, Rockford, oh, Illinois. Seth Atwood. So Seth, Seth Atwood, Atwood. Thank yes. you. Yes. Um, 
And that's pretty incredible if you think about it. Um, you know, today I, I just bought a new laptop. My last one crashed after a few years. Uh, my iPhone is about to go. I'm going to have to get the next one. But if you have a mechanical watch and you take good care of it and you, you know, have it serviced periodically, I mean, they were built to last. They were meant to be, you know, something that could be turned over to your son or your uh, daughter or your granddaughter and, and last for generations. Demetrius, and they're beautiful. Demetrius Matsakos, you are the king of all time. Are you wearing a watch right now? No, I'm not wearing a watch. <laughs> <laughs> not because it broke. Yeah. Why don't you wear a watch? I like to experience the time fully. And somehow it seems if I'm monitoring it, I'm spending too much attention in the monitoring process and not in the experiencing of it. But isn't it your job? <laughs> isn't it your job to monitor time? I mean, if you're not monitoring time, who is? <laughs> I have, uh, I have a whole staff, and we have, and the the staff itself, they don't, they're not a bunch of clock watchers in the, in the old sense. There are computers that are constantly intercomparing the clocks, and if there's a problem, the computers tell us, and we monitor the computers. We constantly try to do it better. And that's a field of endeavor as well, quality control. So, you know, back to this whole idea of just you know, knowing time down to a trillionth of a second or whatever it is. In the vast constellations of things that I don't understand but I'm vaguely aware of, I'm vaguely aware of the fact, Dimitrios, that periodically there's something called a leap second, an entire second that has to be added to time. Explain that to us. The basic situation is that the Earth is slowing down in the very long run. In the dinosaur days, it took only about 20 hours for the Earth to turn around. Now it takes 24 hours. And the, the reason for that is because of the tides in the moon. The tides represent the oceans trying to follow the moon's orbit, which is, takes 30 days to go around instead of 24 hours. And uh, when the tides hit the, the, the uh, shoreline, it represents a break on the Earth, and it slows us down a little bit. On top of that slowdown, there's many irregular motions that are also interacting with it. There are fluctuations on the scale of 10 years and more longer-term fluctuations that we don't fully understand. We think they have to do with the core of the Earth, which is turning a little faster than the crust, and when they couple tightly and when they couple weakly. And this all leads to a problem, then. If you could measure the time to a billionth of a second and you set things up so that there are 60 seconds to a minute, 60 minutes to the hour, 24 hours to the day, what do you do if the Earth doesn't cooperate and then slows down on you? The day is a little off. So the solution that was decided 40 years ago was to let the clocks do run at a natural rate that they chose more or less arbitrarily based on old astronomical data from the 1830s and 1850s. And then whenever the Earth slowed down too much, they would insert a second. They would announce it in advance, about uh, typically about six months in advance, now a little less than six months, four or five months in advance. And it would happen at the end of the June 30 or December 31st, preferentially, because in those days, everybody thought, well, everybody's asleep. It'd be at midnight in UT in England, at those times, however, uh, on the other side of the world, people were wide awake and fully functional. Well, you know, it just—I I, once again, I don't really understand this. Although it seems, 
given the, what you described about the atomic clocks and then this incredible system of GPS and, you know, this this part of it seems like adjusting my laptop by hitting it with a hammer. I mean, it just seems a little crude compared to everything else. Am I missing something here? There are certainly people who feel that way. And uh, it, in fact, does lead to disruptions. It it uh, it can it totally trip computers. A lot of computers have safety checks inside to make sure that time is advancing, and then when a leap second comes in, it looks like they went backwards in time, and they just click off. Or sometimes their information gets misstored in there because uh, the computers are distributed all over the world, and they're communicating and setting data by their times, and you actually end up with two times. when you go, when you go Before you add the leap second and after, there's a jump and a duplicate time, and they don't know when the data is stored. This has led to travelers being disrupted. The uh, CGSIC, the Civil GPS Interface Commission, declared them a hazard to navigation because misprogrammed GPS receivers can add that second at the wrong time or not add it. And that could be a problem with, uh, with traveling, with people in the air. It's also a, a, the specter has been raised of blackouts in cities. Power cycle, uh, the power lines go at 60 hertz. They need to be adequately timed. And uh, the equipment that uh, people put in, sometimes they type in the leap second by hand at the power utilities, and they could type them in wrong, and a mistake could lead to a blackout. I get the feeling you're not totally neutral on the subject. We're, <laughs> we're going to have to stop right now. Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Dimitrios Matsakis, and thanks so much to everybody else who helped out with today's show. I wish we had more time. I've got a lot more questions for Tom Manning, for Stacey per, uh, Perman, and for Dimitrios Matsakis. Especially thank you so much to Jonathan McNichol, who has come here uh, to help us understand really what time it is. We'll be back with the nose tomorrow. There's a little tiny bit of fundraising coming up here, and if you could think about maybe supporting the show with the pledge right now. It's a good thing on our now, checklist. Now, little Kyone Wolf the sixth, I'd like you to inherit this, my Apple Watch. Really? For me? Yes, I wore it every day of my life for 11 months until they came out with a new model.